Welcome to this Google audio presentation of The Man from UNCLE, The Doomsday Affair, by Harry Whittington. Volume 5 6 Solo walked into Forbidden City, just off Grant Avenue. The shops around it and the cafe itself seemed pervaded with oriental incense. One never escaped the startled little bite of shock at finding a place like this, even in a city like San Francisco. The patrons, the murals, the waitresses, the waiters, tables, chairs, they seemed unreal, as if they did not even exist outside the world inside itself. A man in Mandarin dress came forward and bowed. Ah, Mr. Solo, good evening, Mr. Solo. Solo bowed, giving him a faint smile, because he knew neither of them had ever encountered the other before. Will you be kind enough to come this way with me, Mr. Solo? Solo followed him through the tables toward the rear of the cafe. They went along a short, dimly lit corridor, and the Chinese man rapped on the door facing. Alexander Waverly looked up from the head of the table when Solo was ushered into the red upholstered room. Waverly seemed entirely at ease though Solo knew that less than five hours ago he'd been at headquarters on New York's east side, or at home in bed. Nothing ever appeared to ruffle his exterior calm. Solo supposed a man got like this when he had been down all roads and seen everything at least twice. Come in, mister. Uh... You know who I am, Solo said, smiling. You sent for me. Waverly chuckled gravely and motioned him to a chair across the red-varnished table from the third man in the room. He said, Solo, I'm sure you know Osgood, uh, Osgood de Vry. He's a personal advisor to the President of the United States. Solo extended his hand. Glad to know you, Mr. de Vry. I've heard a good deal about you. Osgood de Vry smiled. He was a thick-set man of slightly more than medium height. There was the flushed, pink, steak-fed look about him of a man who had grown accustomed to unaccustomed success and the ease of life. He was in his early fifties, mildly overweight. He wore his graying-brown hair parted to one side and brushed back dry from his scalp. Everyone who knows Osgood is proud of the work he's doing down there in Washington. Waverly said. Not everyone, DeVry said deprecatingly, though he smiled. One does the best he can. Sometimes he's rewarded. Sometimes he's forced to turn the other cheek until he runs out of cheeks. I try not to think about it. I do what I think I have to. Yes, Waverly cleared his throat. Well, this leads us neatly into the reason for our nocturnal call on you, Solo. It's so urgent we had to interrupt your present mission, no matter how important, and even if it were blonde. Waverly smiled, but there was an entire lack of sympathy in his voice. Uh, perhaps I'd better fill you in, Osgood de Vries said. He shifted his attaché case on the table before him. Though it applies to the case, some of it is personal. All of it is a vital concern to the safety of this nation, and perhaps of Russia, too, Waverly said. And we are now certain that it concerns our friend of the code name, Tixie Ilno. 
DeVry filled a pipe with tobacco and tamped it down. He placed the curved mouthpiece between his teeth, but didn't light it. Watching him, Solo saw a strong man who might have somehow weakened from the soft life in Washington. Obviously, he worked hard, but one saw that whatever he did for the president or his country these days, it was all incredibly easier than the life he'd known in his earlier years. DeVry said, I'm a kid who sold newspapers in Dallas streets, Mr. Solo. My folks deserted me. I grew up in foster homes. I made my own decisions. They weren't always right, of course, but I learned to stand up whether they were right or wrong. In my present position, of course, I can't do anything that is contrary to the wishes of the president, nor would I want to. Waverly said, We understand. Solo nodded, settling back into the red leather-covered chair. The lights from the red chimneys cast a reflected glow upon the faces of the men across from him. It's the matter of the decision that's important here. When I was younger, younger than you, Mr. Solo, I was a line officer in the Army. I made decisions then, when I couldn't get back to headquarters, or there wasn't time. I can tell you, I stood or fell in those decisions then. He shook his head as if brushing away a bitterly unpleasant memory. Now what I'm about to tell you, I've discussed with the President, and with Mr. Waverly, but no one else. The President agrees with me that I must make the decision, and he has tacitly allowed me to understand that he will not be able to publicly defend me or my decision. My public life depends on success or failure. We are not here to fail, Osgood, Waverly said. Osgood de Vry laughed, almost a desperate sound. No, we certainly are not. Briefly, Mr. Solo, we have come across some information that perhaps should be turned over to the Joint Chiefs, CIA, the Pentagon. But it is of such nature that even if only a whisper leaked, the entire country might panic. My decision is to deal with it as quietly as we can for as long as we can. My decision is to let you people at Uncle handle it. Now that's my decision, and the President concurs as long as he can and off the record. Failure will mean that my head will roll, that I will have failed the President, who's been a close friend of mine for many years. But more than that, I will have failed the people I have tried to serve all my life, whether they always appreciated it or not. Failure could well mean the destruction of the civilized world, Waverly said. Solo straightened, staring at his chief incredulously. Waverly smiled. Don't be upset, Solo. No one can hear us. This is a soundproofed room. We could fire a cannon in here and we'd never be heard. That's why we chose this place. Solo sighed and relaxed. Then an atomic bomb is involved. At the very least, DeVry said, an atomic device is rumored to be entangled in the affair. Yes. Here's what happened. One of your people in Tokyo, on a tangential matter, came across a spy for Thrush. The man was badly wounded, stomach laid open with a knife wound. He would have no desire to lie. And your man says he was conscious and not delirious which is what I suspected when I first heard what he revealed. The plan is to attack a city inside the continental United States with an atomic device. 
that according to the spy, that device and the operation are almost ready. Time is running out. All of this certainly reconciles with every bit of the information we gathered, which put us onto this tixy ill-no matter in the first place, Waverly said. I may as well tell you, I remain somewhat skeptical, DeVry said. I cannot help but doubt the plausibility of this information, even though we naturally must run it down. We can't ignore it. Not in the light of all our other facts about the activities of Tixie Ilno. The point that makes me most doubtful, DeVry said, is the matter of an outsider striking at the United States with an atomic device. Not with our early warning system. It just isn't practical. It's just nightmarish enough to be possible, though, Solo said. Waverly nodded. The one important matter that evolves from what we have at this moment, whether such a plot actually is in the works or not, and whether a strike could be successfully delivered against us from without or not, whether it is fact or hoax, is that we must get this person. We must get Tixie Ilno, whoever he is, whatever he is. He must be quickly captured and exposed and disarmed. DeVry exhaled. For all the reasons I've given you, I've reached my decision to let you people handle this. Quietly. And I pray quickly. I believe you have made the wise decision, Waverly said. We have reports in our office of thrush agents and of apparent outsiders, inquiring of the governments of Red China, Russia, France, even the U.S., for atomic components. There is afoot a secret plot to hatch some kind of atomic device that is functional. Beyond that, we have the young woman, Baines Neferth, who arranged through you, Osgood, for our protection. Obviously, you know that she has been in the employ of Thrush for almost a year, gathering classified information from men in sensitive roles at missile sites. Don't doubt that there is such a plot. Thrush allowed that young woman to stay alive only long enough to get to us. I failed you then, Mr. DeVry, Solo said quietly. I'll try not to fail you again. You didn't fail me, Mr. Solo, DeVry smiled. Thrush decreed that girl's death long before she came to me. Her death was one factor that convinced me there might be something to the plot of this attack with an atomic weapon. If these people can build one, then perhaps they have the capability for a strike. I don't know yet where it'll lead me, Solo said, but I was able to contact a young woman who was a close confidant of Ursula Baines. Good, good, DeVry said. She's been hiding from Thrush. We were able to get to her first this time, I believe. Yes, Miss Baines told me that the young woman had completely disappeared. I was of a mind that Thrush had found her and destroyed her, I didn't say any of this to Miss Baines, of course. I'm glad to hear the other young woman is alive and safe. She's alive, Solo said. Whether she's safe or not is something else entirely. DeVry smiled. Your record is satisfactory for me, Mr. Solo. I assure you that the President himself will be most pleased when I report to him that you people are at last in contact with someone who might lead us to Tixie Ilno. Even to learn whether Tixie Ilno is male or female will be a giant step forward. Right, gentlemen? 7.
Just don't be impatient, my dear little Elia, Violet Wilde said in a crooning voice. She stood above him where he was sprawled with a sheet of garbled writing before him. Were you writing Violet a love letter, you dear, helpless little bug? Don't you worry. Violet will see you safely put away. She laughed down at him, her beauty making her heartless laughter more than cruel. Elia raged at her, but the sounds he made were the mindless cries of a mewling child. Violet jerked her head, and a man stepped from the shadows. Elia recognized him as the man who had first attacked him with that fluid-filled fountain pen in Honolulu. All right, Edgar, Violet said. It is now 2 a.m. It is time our little Elia and I started our journey. Edgar nodded, but did not speak. Elia struggled against them, but his agitated movements only amused them, and they lifted him easily. Another of the team brought the suitcases. They went out into the corridor, along to the bronzed cage of the elevator. The lobby was almost deserted. Laughter drifted in from the cocktail lounge. A night clerk watched them disinterestedly as they half-carried Ilya toward the front exit. Ilya cried out, but his cawing sounds only frustrated him and got no reaction from the bystanders except a glance of amused pity. They thought he was drunk, a mental defective, or both. Violet spoke soothingly to him as they walked. Not for his sake, he was sure, but for any interested onlooker. But Elia saw that there were none. Even the doorman held open the Carmen Gia door while they half-lifted Elia into the split seat of the convertible. "'Has they been like these long?' he asked Violet in heavily accented English. "'All his life,' Violet replied offhandedly. It was the sort of answer one would give who has lived with a tragic affliction so long that it has lost its pain. She went around and got in under the wheel while their bags were stacked into the small car behind them. She tipped the doorman handsomely and smiled at him. She was calm, unhurried. She tied a pale green wisp of a scarf around her bright red-gold hair, knotted it under her chin. She checked her classic loveliness in the rearview mirror and finally got around to starting the car, putting it in gear, and pulling out of the hotel entrance. Elia glared at the speedometer. She rolled through the sleepy town at less than 20 miles an hour. He heard her humming to herself as she drove. He saw the flicker of headlights in the windshield reflected from behind them. He realized that Violet saw them too. She glanced into her rearview mirror, increasing her speed only slightly as they went north out of the town limits. Elia began to feel a little better. Violet did not seem perturbed, but at the same time they both knew that the car behind them was not friendly to her. Elia sat tensely, waiting for the moment when Violet would tromp on the gas, attempting to lose the car tailing them. He felt a sense of satisfaction. The Mexican countryside was desolate and open. Losing the car would be difficult, especially on this narrow winding road through the mountains. He cut his eyes at her, willing to give her odds that she would not make it. She drove now to an untroubled forty miles an hour. 
Elia stirred in his bucket seat. She glanced at him. What's the matter, little Elia? Does my little bug think his friends will stop us? He forced his head around, though it jerked and trembled, seeing that the car was gaining on the Carmen Ghia convertible. Look well, Violet told him sardonically. He saw at once what she meant. Another set of headlights flared behind the second car. He did not have to be told that this was Edgar and his friends. They had lain back only long enough to give the uncle agents time to roll in behind Violet's small car. Now we shall see what we shall see, Violet said. She laughed, showing faultless white teeth. Now! She cried out the word and shoved her slipper hard onto the accelerator. The small car lunged ahead on the narrow, dark road. Elia felt the sharp cut of the wind. The motor hummed and the tires screamed on the shoddy pavement. She slowed slightly when a sign warned of a sharp curve, but she was already speeding again as she rolled into it. Her headlights raked across the grass and rock facade of the mountains. At times, below them, the tops of huge trees bent in the night wind. Climbing upward, they could see the racing headlights of the other two cars and the turns beneath them in the unquiet dark. Elia was tossed helplessly in his seat. He tried to cling to something, but he could not force his hands to obey his orders. The speedometer needle wavered at eighty. They struck potholes, and the small car danced, almost turning around. Violet fought the wheel, bringing them skidding to the brink of a deep chasm. "'What are you afraid of, my little bug?' Violet shouted. The wind caught her words, fragmenting them. "'You want to go on living, the way you are? You call that living?' Helia made no attempt to answer her. He saw in a turn that Violet's car had far outdistanced the other two. Perhaps for two reasons— the men in the other cars didn't take the insane chances that Violet did on this unfamiliar mountain road, and the race for the moment was between those two cars back there. The third car was lunging and nipping at the one ahead of it, in a dogfight attempt to force it off the road at every hairpin turn. You wouldn't want them to get you away from us, Violet shouted at him. Not really. Not the way you are. What do your people know of the injection you got, or even how to combat its effects? Elia had flopped against the side of the car, locking his chin over the door. He was able to watch the cars below them when they came out on plateaus or sharp turns. He saw the four headlights blend until they were like one huge beam. He saw them waver and waltz crazily back and forth across the road. Once... The inside pair seemed to climb a sheer mountain wall and then fall back, leveling out only with painful slowness. Then they came together down there again. The scream of metal was lost in the distance. But the spark and fire of metal friction was not. The car seemed to lock, to sway back and forth from one side of the road to the other, hung together, neither willing to back away. Each turn brought them closer to the brow of the cliff. Violet slowed the car, and he cut his eyes around, seeing a savage intentness in her face, a bloodlust in her eyes. She seemed, with some kind of animal instinct, to sense the moment 
when it was going to happen. She allowed the convertible to slow almost to a crawl, her whole attention riveted on the battle between the cars below them. It seemed to prolong itself interminably, but it was quickly over. The cars swung back and forth like one car on the narrow, twisting roadway, skirting its rim. Suddenly the wheels of the outside car peeled away from the rocks and shale at the brink of an angular turn. The wheels skidded off the road. The car suddenly dropped and then went leaping outward into the darkness. The headlights appeared turned straight up for a split second, and then they fell away, and there was only darkness. Elia heard the savagery in Violet's deep sigh, and after a moment she stepped hard on the gas. The sun was metallic white when they lined up at the international border. Elia lay with his head on the vent rest, trying to force intelligible words from his mouth. His attempts did not disturb Violet. In fact, they seemed to amuse her. My little bug just won't stop fighting, will he? She said. They rolled up into customs. The American's officer tipped his hat and asked if they'd mind getting out of the car. Violet smiled sadly across Elia, the young officer. My brother can get out, sir, and he will if he must, but you'll have to help him in and out. Elia struggled, mouth stretching wide, as he tried to speak one intelligible word. His mind was agonizingly clear, as bright as the sunlight, but the sounds he made were those of a low-grade idiot. It was a birth defect, Violet told the customs man. Brain damage, you know. Yeah, that's too bad. He called another officer, and between them they lifted Elia from the car and set him on a chair outside the office. Violet stood chatting with the officers while they opened his luggage and hers and while they inspected passports. Bitterly, he wondered about the one they prepared for him, name, age, cause of idiocy. He stared at them, at the people going both ways across the border. He cried out, but it was a cawing sound, and they glanced at him in shame-faced pity. No one liked to look at the mentally defective. Breathing raggedly, Elia forced his body to bend forward at the hips until he fell off the chair. He struggled then and tried to crawl away. Couldn't these people see now that something was wrong? And they came running. Poor guy, he fell off his chair. Don't squirm around like that, fella. We'll get you up. Take it easy. Come on. It's okay. It's all right, Elia heard Violet's calm voice. He does this all the time. She bent over him. You're a naughty boy, she straightened. That's why we're having to put him away finally. We don't want to do it, but he simply cannot take care of himself. They drove in silence northward up the rugged California coast. They stopped for the night in a sleek motel on Highway 101. By now, Elia saw they'd been joined by Edgar and company. He saw that the men were still shaken by their encounter with the uncle agents on the Mexican highway. He watched Violet. She was completely unconcerned about the deaths. Death had no meaning for her. He gazed at her thinking she would enjoy torturing and tormenting the helpless. She had a strange kick for seeing him squirm, 
and his red-faced attempts to speak. In the morning, they loaded him once more into the convertible, and Violet kept the Carmen Ghia at top speed, going north again. In the afternoon, they left the coastal highway, climbing east into the mountain ranges. They sped through a small town of stucco buildings and palm-lined parkways. They continued to climb, and a chill settled through the car. At about four o'clock, Violet brought the car to a halt before the tall, iron-barred gate in a six-foot fieldstone fence. Above the gate, in fussy wrought iron, were the words, Broadmoor Rest. The name stirred something inside Elia's mind, troubling him, but he could not pin it down. He knew it to be a private sanitarium of some kind, created from the thousand-acre estate and chateau built by a lumber and mining millionaire in the early twenties, but it was not just that it was a sanitarium. There was something more, something that had turned up with a puzzling regularity in uncle briefings. He struggled with the thought, but it eluded him. The gates parted and Violet drove through, going along the twisting lane toward the vine-matted walls of the old stone castle. He could see its turrets and gables and bay windows. He couldn't see the bars at those windows, but he knew they were there. Three white-clad orderlies awaited them when Violet braked the car behind the veranda. They stood on the steps that stretched thirty feet across, made of the same native stone as were the fence and the house. The orderlies came off the wide steps and lined up beside the car. One of them glanced at Elia, then grinned at Violet. Is this it? Violet laughed. He's all yours, the orderly said. What are you doing tonight, baby? Violet tossed her red-gold head. You'll never know, simpleton. I can't tolerate men work for a salary. It makes peasants of them. She turned on her spike heels and tapped away, going up those same stone steps and through the huge, thick redwood doors. The orderlies reached for Elia. He struggled, fighting at them, but his arms only flailed wildly, and the noises he made were foolish, giggling sounds. He was in an agony of terror and outrage, but he was unable to express anything except garbled idiocy. 8. Sola paused for a moment outside his room in the St. Francis Hotel. For no good reason, he felt the tightening inside that warned of danger. He shook the thought away and rapped three times, slowly. He listened for Barbary's voice beyond the door, but there was silence. Solo tensed, taking the key from his pocket. The door was unlocked and opened as he reached for it. Solo scowled, saying, I thought I told you to... He stopped speaking, staring into the blandly smiling face of Samuel Suyan. Come in, we've been waiting for you, Suyan said. Solo's hand moved toward the holster beneath his jacket but stopped when he noted the small twenty-five caliber Spanish-made Astra pistol that Su Yan held. An experimental model, Solo, Su Yan said, but still quite deadly. Solo sighed and stepped inside the room. Everything looked as it had when he'd walked out, except that now Barbary Coe sat at the foot of his bed, 
staring straight ahead of her, features rigid, gaze transfixed. She looked like a mannequin. Are you all right, Barbary? Solo walked toward her, trying to ignore the snub nose of the astra that was fixed on his spine. Barbary turned her head slowly and stared at him blankly. It was as though she had never seen him before. Of course she's all right, Su Yan said from behind Solo. Aren't you all right, my dear? I'm all right, Barbary said in a flat, lifeless tone. Staring at her, Solo shivered involuntarily. We've been looking for Esther for a long time, Su Yan said in a conversational tone. I must thank you and your organization for locating her for us and for leading us to her. We have a pretty good organization for finding people who want to be lost, Solo said. Even those who have declared themselves officially dead. Perhaps I no longer guarded my privacy so zealously, Su Yan said. You have a rich organization, underwritten as it is by so many nations, but it is not infallible. I proved this before, and I shall prove it again. No, they're on to you, Su Yan. They've got files on you and pictures. You're part of a regular briefing. I mention this only in case you think you can get away with murdering this girl, or both of us. They have pictures tying you in with Ursula Baines Neifert's death in Honolulu. One more death will bring them down on you. Su Yan smiled mildly. You fail to intimidate me, Solo. Your people know me, for my agents know you now, and your young associate, Kiriakin. Perhaps the death in Honolulu attracted too much attention, just as a death here might, even one in no way involving me or my people. Besides, there is an angle you fail to consider. Perhaps we don't need your death at the moment so much as we need you stalemated, checked, stopped. Our moment is at hand, Solo. Surely you must perceive this. I no longer remain among the dead. All our operations are accelerated. We are making moves more openly, tucking in neatly all those loose ends, such as this young woman here. She is not really important, merely a minor nuisance we'd rather not have running around loose. But in case you take some hope from this, let me tell you that your deaths, after our operation has been completed successfully, will in no way trouble us. Solo felt the tension all through his body, but he kept his voice unemotional. We all die sometime. Perhaps Barbary and I feel some reassurance in the fact that we're to be spared at all. Live one day at a time, eh, Barbary? The girl continued staring straight ahead of her. She did not react when Solo spoke. Su Yan said, I'm afraid if you want to speak to Esther, you'll have to do it through me. She reacts only to my voice, speaks only when I speak to her, does only what I tell her to do. Very neat hypnosis, but no better than I've seen done in a nightclub, and I don't believe you worked it through that closed locked door. Suyan shrugged. What you believe or disbelieve doesn't interest me, Mr. Solo. I'm sure you've heard of post-hypnotic suggestion 
and the fact that a subject, once hypnotized, can be easily put back under at a second, third, or a hundredth time. Always with greater ease, if one makes maximum use of that post-hypnotic suggestion, sometimes a word, just one word. Solo glanced at the waxen-like face of the girl and exhaled heavily. You simply told her to unlock the door to you, and she did it. Just like that, huh? That's correct, Solo, just like that. As I told you, everything is going my way now. Just like that. This girl won't look at you or react when you speak to her. She will do anything I tell her. She will shoot you, Solo, right now, if I tell her. Solo did not bother arguing with that one. Would you like me to prove that she always obeys me? He nodded toward the scotch and bucket of ice on the dresser. Esther, Mr. Solo and I are thirsty. The three of us have a long journey ahead of us tonight. Prepare the three of us scotch on ice. Yes. Barbary stood up slowly and walked woodenly to the dresser. Suyan's voice clawed after her in its cat-like, tormenting way. Oh, and by the way, Esther, when you speak to me, I would like a more respectful tone. Yes, sir, Barbary said. Solo straightened and Su Yan heeled around, his instinct sharp, his reaction time extraordinary. Solo relaxed, he said. This proves you've known Barbary for a long time. Yes, I knew Esther for a while, even before Ursula started to work for our organization. Didn't I, Esther? Barbary paused, mixing drinks at the dresser. She tilted her head, facing them in the mirror, her violet eyes empty. Yes, sir, she said. She returned to mixing drinks. Suyan smiled, pleased. He backed a couple of steps and sat down in a chair under a reading lamp. He reached up and snapped off its light. Barbary turned from the dresser, carrying the ice drinks in hotel drinking glasses. She extended one to Solo, gazing at him, but not even seeing him. He took the drink from her, and she turned mechanically, going to where Sam Su Yan reclined, with the small gun resting on his lap. Barbary then walked away from him, and leaned against the dresser as if awaiting a new command from Su Yan. Suyan sipped at the scotch, staring coldly at Barbary over the top of his glass. He said, I saw you last at Cocoa Beach, didn't I, Esther? Yes, sir. She trembled, reacting, even in her semi-conscious state. Fear melted and ran through her body. She nodded. What did I tell you then, Esther? She didn't speak for a moment, then she said, Not to try to run away again. But you did, didn't you? First to Chicago, and then San Francisco. Didn't you? Yes, sir. Her voice was like that of a terrorized child. Solo stared at her, so fascinated by the extreme cruelty being practiced upon her by Su Yan, that he sipped at his drink, hardly aware of the taste or the chill of the glass in his hand. Barbary had not lied. She did fear this man more than she did the devil. Her whole body was quivering with fear. 
I warned you what I'd do if you ran away, didn't I, Esther? Suyan persisted. Yes, sir. She could barely speak. Her face was the white of chalk dust. I told you I would take you back that place you hate if you disobeyed me again, didn't I? The girl cried out, a guttural, protesting sound. She was incoherent with fear, unable to speak even in her trance. Enraged, Solo forgot that gun lying waiting in Su Yan's lap. Blood throbbed at his temple. His head ached, and the pressure behind his eyes was fierce. He had not known he could hate anyone as he hated this man tormenting that helpless girl, or that his emotions could make his head feel as if it were bursting. Even the objects around the room appeared wavering and insubstantial. Who are you tormenting her like this? Solo demanded. Su Yan flicked a casual glance toward him, not bothering to tilt the gun. His thick brows lifted as if he were surprised. I thought you had my complete file, Solo. Your rich, far-reaching organization. I thought you knew. Do you begin to be afraid of me, Solo? Do you begin to think that perhaps I'm in another of your files? That perhaps I am Tixie Ilno? Solo's head throbbed. He was aware of the pounding of his pulses, the frantic beat of his heart. He shook his head. Forgetting caution or reason, he lunged toward the man in the chair. No, I don't think you're Tixie Ilno. I think you're a... He stops speaking. Anne stops riding forward. He shook his head, trying to clear it, but he couldn't. He reached out wildly for support, but there was none. He saw Su Yan make a serpentine, graceful movement up from the chair, standing beside it, watching him. He fought to keep his balance, but the room and the world were suddenly black-dark. How is that possible? The question burned in his mind, and as everything else blanked out for him, the answer came bright and clear. Under previous orders from Su Yan, Barbary had dropped a knockout pellet into his scotch, and Su Yan had kept him distracted while he drank it down. But in the warm darkness where he was, not even this answer mattered. <laughs>